Good morning. So, as Keith said, we're going to carry on our um, series on faith, hope, and love. And this morning, after three weeks, I think, looking at the idea of hope, um, we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at love over the next couple of weeks. Uh, uh, faith, sorry, over the next couple of weeks. So, this morning, um, we're looking at a talk that's entitled Faith is Kinetic. But what does that mean? Let's look at a few quotes. Billy Graham says, The greatest legacy one can pass on to one's children and grandchildren is not money or other material things accumulated in one's life, but rather a legacy of character and faith. John Ortberg says, If you want to walk on water, you've got to get out of the boat. Mother Teresa says, be faithful in small things because it is in them that your strength lies. Barack Obama says, our faith changes us. I know it's changed me. It renews in us a sense of possibility. It allows us to believe that although we are all sinners and that at times we will falter, there is always the possibility of redemption. Martin Luther King says, faith is taking the first step even when you don't see the whole staircase. There's going to be a lot of quotes. There's going to be a lot of slides. Feel free to take notes. Feel free to tweet stuff if you want to tweet stuff. Feel free to write stuff down. Feel free to take pictures of the screen if you want to remember stuff because we're going to fly through this morning. Um, let's perhaps look at another quote. Anne Lamott, who is a, a writer, says, the opposite of faith is not doubt. It is certainty. It is madness. You can tell you have created God in your own image when it turns out that he or she hates all the same people you do. <laughs> Brene Brown says, faith is a place of mystery where we find the courage to believe in what we cannot see and the strength to let go of our fear of uncertainty. Brené Brown also says, courage is a value. My faith is the organizing principle in my life, and what underpins my faith is courage and love. And so I have to be in the arena if I'm going to live in alignment with my values. And she's pulling there on um, a quote that her book is based on, um, which is this... Um, this, this quote about being in the arena, and it's the people who are in the arena that count, that make the difference, that change the trajectory of the world. Not the people who are observing, critiquing, commenting from the sidelines, but the people who are in there um, involved. And that's what she's referencing. So, I was looking um, recently at some on the internet, and I found this site which had a, different, a bunch of different um, quotes from insurance claims after car accidents that people have put in. These are genuine, real insurance claims that people put in, and these are the excuses they gave or the explanations they gave of their accident. So we'll go through a couple of these. Coming home, I drove into the wrong house and collided with a tree I don't have. I thought my window was down, but found it was up when I put my head through it. 
The guy was all over the road. I had to swerve a number of times before I hit him. I had been driving for 40 years when I fell asleep at the wheel. <laughs> to avoid hitting the bumper of the car in front, I struck a pedestrian. <laughs> I told the police that I was not injured, but on removing my hat, found out that I had fractured a skull. <laughs> the pedestrian had no idea which way to run, so I ran over him. <laughs> a few more. The car in front hit the pedestrian, but he got up, so I hit him again. <laughs> I pulled away from the side of the road, glanced at my mother-in-law, and headed over the embankment. <laughs> In an attempt to kill a fly, I drove into a telephone pole. Seems a little excessive. An invisible car came out of nowhere, struck my car, and vanished. <laughs> I collided with a stationary truck coming the other way. I don't know whether the truck was carrying stationary or whether the truck was stationary, but... My car was illegally parked as it backed into another vehicle. And my favorite one, I saw a slow-moving, sad-faced old gentleman as he bounced off the roof of my car. <laughs> You see, the thing about accidents is you have to be moving to have an accident, despite some of their claims. So I was perfectly well parked when I reversed into another car or um, I collided with a stationary truck. But there has to be movement. And that's why today's talk is entitled Faith is Kinetic. Because kinetic energy is the energy of motion. An object that has motion, whether it is vertical or horizontal motion, has kinetic energy. In physics, the kinetic energy of an object is the energy that it possesses due to its motion. It is defined as the work needed to accelerate a body of a given mass from rest to its stated velocity. Having gained this energy during its acceleration, the body maintains this kinetic energy unless its speed changes. So kinetic energy is all about movement, which is why, which is why I say that faith is kinetic. Because faith cannot be static. Faith is kinetic. It always involves movement. Sometimes it's very easy to kind of go, oh, well, I believe in this, or I believe in that, I have faith in this, and I have faith in that, but nothing changes. But true faith always creates momentum, always involves movement. And so faith is kinetic. I want to look at a um, story this morning of the Israelites. They have been liberated from slavery in Egypt and they have entered into the wilderness and God has told them about this promised land he wants to take them to. Remember, we might have talked before, you might have heard me talk before um, about when God saves the Israelites, 
from Egypt. He gets them out of Egypt, but then he has to do the work of getting Egypt out of them because they have been conditioned by their culture. They have grown up in this society that tells them that gods need to be appeased, gods need to be kept happy, that gods can get angry with you. You need to keep the gods on your side. And when God pulls them out of slavery, he saves them geographically, but now he needs to save them socially. He needs to save them spiritually. He needs to teach them how to live with a different rhythm, with a different purpose. And so he gives them the law. He gives them the commandments. He gives them the law. And the law is always about liberation, not about condemnation. I know maybe it can appear sometimes we make it about condemnation, but the law was always about liberation, liberating the people from the culture they'd become trapped in, this culture of not enough this culture of needing more all the time, this culture of fear, this culture of fear of God, this culture of greed, this culture of power and domination. And God needs to save them from that. And so he gives them the law. And he tells them of this promised land where they are going to be established as a nation, where they will, as a nation, be a blessing to all the nations because the blessing never stops with us. We're just the conduit of the blessing. So he says, I'm going to bless you so you can be a blessing. And he tells them about this promised land that he's taking them to. And it actually doesn't take them very long to get there. It takes them a few weeks. And in Numbers chapter 13, we see this story. And what's happened is they've got to the edge of the promised land, and then Moses has decided to send in some spies to spy out the land, to see what it's like, to see whether it is this land flowing with milk and honey, to see whether it is this land of blessing that God has promised them. And their reports come back. And this was their report to Moses. We entered the land you sent us to explore, and it is indeed a bountiful country, a land flowing with milk and honey. Here is the kind of fruit it produces. And they had brought some of the produce back with them. But the people living there are powerful, and their towns are large and fortified. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. The Amalekites live in the Negev, and the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites live in the hill country. The Canaanites live along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea and along the Jordan Valley. But Caleb tried to quiet the people as they stood before Moses. Let's go at once to take the land, he said. We can certainly conquer it. But the other men who had explored the land with him disagreed. We can't go up against them. They are stronger than we are. So they spread this bad report about the land among the Israelites. The land we traveled through and explored will devour anyone who goes to live there. All the people we saw were huge. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. Next to them, we felt like grasshoppers. And that's what they thought too. I love that line. And that's what they thought too. We felt like grasshoppers, and they thought we were like grasshoppers too. It's like this really like, not even just us that thought that. They they have no fear of us. And they tell this story. And the Israelites decide to not go into the promised land. And the consequence of that is that they spend 40 years wandering around in the wilderness. You see... Fear is the adversary of faith. Where faith encourages encourages us to expand, to take the next step, to step out of the boat, fear reminds us of our weakness, our smallness, and our failures. 
and it tries to convince us to stay put. It urges us to shrink back. And that's what happened to the Israelites here. Fear got into them. This land that God had promised them. And it's not like they hadn't seen God working. They'd seen him bring the ten plagues. They'd seen him bring them out of Egypt. They'd seen him part the Red Sea. They'd seen him bring water from the rock. They'd seen his presence on top of the mountain. They'd seen all of that. They had seen miracle after miracle after miracle. And yet, fear told them it wasn't worth the risk. Fear told them they couldn't possibly do it. Fear told them it was too big, it was too scary, that land's going to devour you. When God had said, that land is going to be a blessing to you. And they're presented with this choice, faith or fear. And they chose fear. And fear gets into us, right? It works in us, and it gets into us, and it distorts our, vision, our view and our vision. And the consequences of it can be for decades. Forty years, the Israelites wandered around in the wilderness. Forty years before God brought them back to the same pot, spot with the same choice to make. Because, you see, that's what God does. Because he's a gracious God. And he's put callings on our lives. And he's put, he's put giftings in us. And he calls us to be part of something bigger. So what God does is, if we come to a point and we choose fear over faith, don't be surprised if at some point, in a few weeks or a few months or a few years or a few decades, God brings you right back around to that same point with that same decision. Forty years later. And 40 years later we see in Joshua chapter 1. God is now talking to Joshua. Moses has died. And Joshua is now leading the Israelites and they are in the same spot on the banks of the Jordan, deciding whether they go into the promised land or not. And God says, Be strong and courageous, for you are the one who will lead these people to possess all the land I swore to their ancestors. I would give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the instructions Moses gave you. Do not deviate from them, turning either to the right or to the left. Then you will be successful in everything you do. Study this book of instruction continually. Meditate on it day and night so you will be sure to obey everything in it. Only then will you prosper and succeed in all you do. This is my command. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. See, faith always requires courage. remind you that Brené Brown said, faith is a place of mystery where we find the courage to believe in what we cannot see and the strength to let go of our fear of uncertainty. Faith is a place of mystery. It's not about certainty. It's not about being sure and knowing. It's a place of mystery 
where we find the courage to believe in what we cannot see and the strength to let go of our fear of uncertainty. I think there's a number of us this morning, and it's true for us as a church. We don't know what the future looks like. We don't know some of the things that we're stepping into, and we have this sense that we're stepping into more. We have this sense that we're on the verge of something, but it requires faith, and it requires courage to step into that. And that might be true whatever your circumstance is. But God has you at a point with a decision to make. Is it going to be faith or is it going to be fear? Are you going to expand or are you going to shrink back? Because faith is a place of mystery where we find the courage to believe in what we cannot see and the strength to let go of our fear of uncertainty. So, go back to Joshua. And uh, we see these spies. They send spies again in to Jericho to see what's going on. Because sending spies in last time worked really well, so they thought, we'll do that again. And uh, they sent the spies in. And um, the spies go in, and they meet this woman called Rahab, who's a prostitute in the city, but she hides them. And the, the guards and the soldiers are looking for them, but she hides them and sends the guards the other way. And then it says, before the spies went to sleep that night, Rahab went up on the roof to talk with them. I know the Lord has given you this land, she told them. We are all afraid of you. Everyone in the land is living in terror, for we have heard how the Lord made a dry path for you through the Red Sea when you left Egypt. And we know what you did to Sihon and Og, the two Amorite kings east of the Jordan River, whose people you completely destroyed. No wonder our hearts have melted in fear. No one has the courage to fight after hearing such things, for the Lord your God is the supreme God of the heavens above and the earth below." Now, isn't that brilliant? Because the Israelites are presented with a city that has never been defeated, the city of Jericho, with walls that are ridiculously high and ridiculously thick and ridiculously strong. And they're looking at it going, well, we have got no chance. And then they send these spies in. And what they hear from the people of Jericho is, oh my goodness, we are terrified of you. We've heard all the stories. We know that the sea parted. We know that you've won all these battles. We know what your God does. Your God's amazing. Your God's way bigger than ours. Your God's way stronger than ours. We're terrified of you. Is it any wonder that we're melting in fear because of your God? The people of Jericho had more faith in Israel's God than Israel did. They had more faith in Israel's God than Israel did. Do we ever find ourselves in that situation? Do we ever find it true that sometimes other people seem to have more faith in our God than we do? People who don't even believe. People who don't identify as Christians. Sometimes you can be in conversation with them and they see what's going on in our life or through what we do or and it seems like they, they believe in our God more than we do sometimes. I've seen situations where people who aren't Christians have seen me pray for healing for someone and see them healed and go, oh great, can I do that? And they've prayed for someone and seen them healed. This God that they don't believe in, but they're working out the miracles with them. 
Sometimes other people have more faith in our God than we do. Sometimes others recognize the miraculous in us and in our story more than we do. Because they're talking, the, this Rahab is saying, we know that your God parted the, the sea 40 years ago. Our hearts have melted in fear. Which presents this fascinating image, right, of the first time the Israelites went to the shores of Jericho. And you get, we're given this image, I think, here, of the people of Jericho looking out, going, have you heard what their God has done? This mass of people, this tribe of Israel, he's parted the sea. He's prepared them on the mountain. Have you seen the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire? Have you seen what their God is like? We haven't got a chance. And then they see them heading towards them. And the guards are going, stay down, everybody. Everybody hide. They're coming. This isn't going to be good. We haven't got a chance here. They're coming. Incoming. They're coming. They're coming. Watch out. No, no, they're going. They're going again. They're going again. And they see the Israelites come right to the borders of their city and then walk away in fear. Can you imagine how the people of Jericho felt? Well, why didn't they just come and take the land? Because we know it's theirs. The people of Jericho had more faith in God than the people of Israel did. And I think sometimes that's true for us too. But this time, Joshua decides that he's going to attack. And then he has this fascinating, fascinating um, encounter. In Joshua chapter 5, it says, And then this, while Joshua was there near Jericho, he looked up and saw right in front of him a man standing, holding his drawn sword. Joshua stepped up to him and said, Whose side are you on, ours or our enemies? The man said, Neither. I'm commander of God's army. I've just arrived. Joshua fell face to the ground and worshipped. He asked, What orders does my master have for his servant? And God's army commander ordered Joshua, take your sandals off your feet. The place you are standing is holy. Joshua did it. This is a game changer. You see, you see, the Israelites grew up with a tribalistic mentality that God was their God, and everyone else had their gods, but God, Yahweh, was their God. So God was on their side. God was going to give them the victory. God was going to destroy their enemies. God was going to make all the good things happen for them and all the bad things happen to everybody else who was against them. They had this tribalistic mindset. And so when Joshua sees this angelic figure, this divine figure, his answer is, well, which God are you? You ours or you theirs? You on our side or you on their side? And the, command, and the guy, commander of the army says, neither, I'm God. I've just arrived. They, he's going, no, no, this isn't about sides. This is a whole different conversation. This isn't, I'm not a tribalistic God. I am God. This isn't about whether you're right and they're wrong or I'm going to bless you and I'm stronger than their God. Or, it's not about that. 
I'm God. And I'm here. It's a game changer. Because God isn't tribalistic. And when we think of God as ours or on our side and against our enemies, we diminish him and misrepresent him. We are on his side. He's not on our side. He is Lord, not us. He is God, not us. We are for him or against him, not the other way around. It's a whole new way for them of understanding who God is. Because God is so much bigger than picking sides. God is God. Which reminds us of the quote we saw at the beginning from Anne Lamott that said, the opposite of faith is not doubt, it is certainty. It is madness. You can tell you have created God in your own image when it turns out that he or she hates all the same people you do. And how much... How many times do we see that? You can see it on the news. See it across the water in America. We see it right here. That God validates our politics. God validates our decisions. God validates our prejudices. God's on our side. We're right. And all we've done is great God in our image. There's a writer, a Franciscan monk called Richard Rohr. And he says this, Most people think having faith means to believe in Jesus. But to share in the faith of Jesus is a much richer concept. It is not so much an invitation as it is a cosmic declaration about the very shape of reality. By myself, I don't know how to have faith in God, but once we know that Jesus is the corporate stand-in for everybody, we know we have already been taken on the ride through death and back to life. All we can do now is make what is objectively true fully conscious for us. He goes on. Faith is not an affirmation of a creed, an intellectual acceptance of God, or believing certain doctrines to be true or orthodox although those things might well be good. Such intellectual assent does not usually change your heart or your lifestyle. Just believing things about Jesus doesn't affect change in us. So it can't be faith because there's no movement. God refuses to be known intellectually. God can only be loved and known in the act of love. God can only be experienced in communion I am afraid that you can believe doctrines, for example, the virgin birth, biblical inerrancy, real presence in bread and wine, etc. You can believe these things to be true and not enjoy such a radical confidence in love or God at all. You see, faith is kinetic. It inspires us to action. It moves us to participation. It encourages us to take the next step and the next one. It pulls us on a trajectory towards God and his kingdom. It invites us to play our part in a bigger story. It compels us to live out our calling and to discover our identity. Faith is about movement. Moving towards something. Talks about this in Hebrews 11. 
says a fundamental fact of existence is that this trust in God, this faith, is the firm foundation under everything that makes life worth living. It's our handle on what we can't see. The act of faith is what distinguished our ancestors, set them above the crowd. By faith, we see the world called into existence by God's word, what we see created by what we don't see. By an act of faith, Abel brought a better sacrifice to God than Cain. It was what he believed, not what he brought, that made the difference. That's what God noticed and approved as righteousness. After all these centuries, that belief continues to catch our notice. By an act of faith, Abraham said yes to God's call to travel to an unknown place that would become his home. When he left, he had no idea where he was going. By an act of faith, he lived in the country promised him, lived as a stranger, camping in tents. Isaac and Jacob did the same, living under the same promise. Abraham did it by keeping his eye on an unseen city with real, eternal foundations. The city designed and built by God. Which reminds us of the quote by Martin Luther King. Faith is taking the first step even when you don't see the whole staircase. You see, Abraham is called to leave his home, his position of power and strength and might, and to step out into the unknown. And we are called by God to take steps of faith, not always knowing what it's going to look like on the other side. And so just hearing God for what the next step is. This is what faith looks like. And then he goes on to a long list. I'm not going to read them all now. He goes on to a long list of different people who acted in faith. He says, I could go on and on, but I've run out of time. There are so many more. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets. Through acts of faith, they toppled kingdoms, made justice work, took the promises for themselves. They were protected from lions, fires, sword thrusts, turned disadvantage to advantage, won battles, routed alien armies. Women received their loved ones back from the dead. There were those who, under torture, refused to give in and go free, preferring something better, resurrection. Others braved abuse and whips, and yes, chains and dungeons. We have stories of those who were stoned, sawed in two, murdered in cold blood, stories of vagrants wandering the earth in animal skins, homeless, friendless, powerless. The world didn't deserve them, making their way as best they could on the cruel edges of the world. Not one of these people, even though their lives of faith were exemplary, got their hands on what was promised. God had a better plan for us, that their faith and our faith would come together to make one completed whole. Their lives of faith, not complete apart from ours. Because it's not just about our individual journey and our individual faith, it's about our corporate journey, our collective journey of faith. And we're not just telling that story as individuals and a collective as a church, but we're telling a much bigger story that spans the entirety of history, which is exactly what our story dimension says. Our story dimension says we believe that we are part of a bigger story that crosses the generations of history. We believe that Jesus spans this entire story and that the cross is the central point, the point of love, salvation, and hope. We believe that the same God whose story is told throughout the Bible continues to tell that story today in us and through us. And we believe that we are called to be the latest in a long line of people who are exploring what it means 
to live out the kingdom of God in our world today. That's what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. We are part of this bigger story. And so as we come to a close, I want to read Hebrews 12. Because it says, do you see what this means? All these pioneers who blazed the way, all these veterans cheering us on, it means we'd better get on with it. Strip down, start running, and never quit. No extra spiritual fat, no parasitic sins. Keep your eyes on Jesus, who both began and finished this race we're in. Study how he did it, because he never lost sight of where he was headed. That exhilarating finish in and with God. He could put up with anything along the way. Cross, shame, whatever. And now he's there in the place of honor, right alongside God. When you find yourselves flagging in your faith, go over that story again, item by item. That long litany of hostility he plowed through. That will shoot adrenaline into your veins. That journey of faith, that journey of courage, taking steps without knowing where it's headed to, people suffering. And as we carry on this story, we're not just people who are telling a story of 2,000 years ago. We are people who are continuing to tell this story as we live it out today. And we are surrounded by a great crowd of witnesses. You see, that's why we talk about being in the arena. That's why we talk about being in the arena. Because our time for being a crowd of witnesses is still to come. Our day will come when we're part of the crowd of witnesses. But for now, we are in the arena. We are called to get dirty. We are called to get blooded and bruised. We are called to take these steps of faith in adversity and in blessing. As Brene Brown said, courage is a value. My faith is the organizing principle in my life, and what underpins my faith is courage and love. And so I have to be in the arena if I'm going to live in alignment with my values. Let us be a people of courage and a people of faith, a people who look to Jesus, who keep our eyes fixed on Jesus all the time, every day, they are not distracted or discouraged by fear, but who live out faith. Because faith is participation. Faith is kinetic. Faith inspires us to action. It moves us to participation. It encourages us to take the next step and the next one. It pulls us on a trajectory towards God and his kingdom. It invites us to play our part in a bigger story. It compels us to live out our calling and to discover our identity. And so like Joshua, when he comes face to face with the commander of the Lord's army, the commander says, I'm commander of God's army, and I've just arrived. And in the face of that, Joshua fell face to the ground and worshipped and said, what orders does my master have for his servant? What are the things you want me to do? What are the steps of faith you want me to take? What's the movement? 
that you want to happen here. And God's army commander ordered Joshua, take your sandals off your feet. The place you are standing is holy. Joshua did it. I wonder this morning, has our faith maybe become a bit static? Have we given into fear and have we chosen to shrink a little bit? Have we chosen the safe, what appears to be the safe option rather than the courageous option? But as followers of Jesus, as people of faith, we are to be people who take steps of faith. People of movement, people of transformation, people who are heading somewhere, people who are in the arena. So I'd love us all to ask the question this morning to the commander of God's army. What would you like me to do? What would you have me do? And as musicians play, it might be that you want to stand. It might be that you want to take your shoes off because you feel like you're on holy ground. It might be that you want to come and sit in front of the cross. I don't know how you want to respond, but I want us to wait. I want us to ask God that question. What would you have me do? What are the steps of faith you would have me take? So Lord, we invite you. We invite you to minister to us, to speak to us, to instruct us, to guide us, to correct us, to challenge us, to teach us. What would you have us do? We invite you to come, Spirit. And then we just wait. If you feel like you need to move, please feel free to move as a symbol, perhaps, of choosing this motion, this movement that God's calling you to. If you feel like you need to take off your shoes, please do that. If you feel like you need to kneel, please do that. What is God saying? What is God moving you to?